Welcome to Let's Talk Shop, a podcast filled with business stories and practical advice for the product-based entrepreneur. My name is Therese and I help small business owners grow their wholesale. I hope that the stories and advice shared on this podcast will inspire action and help you build your business. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 2. In this episode, I chat to Henry Davis, Deputy Chairman of the Giftware Association and Retail Consultant. Henry has over 30 years of experience in the retail industry and we chat about the struggling high street, the importance of continuing to involve and innovate to stay in business, and of course about Brexit. We also talk about sustainability, what to do at trade shows, how to build a good relationship between suppliers and buyers, and so much more. One of the key reasons I wanted to start this podcast was to bridge the gap between small businesses and retailers, to make it less scary to reach out and connect with other businesses, and to try to help you be more prepared to go for it and take that next step, whatever that step is for you. Henry is really involved in the industry, and I love how passionate she is about small business. She frequently contributes to the trade press and she publishes articles on her website that I'm sure you would find an interesting read. I will pop her website in the show notes so you can have a look. I would love to see where you are listening. Remember to tag me over on Instagram at small underscore business underscore collaborative. I'd also really appreciate it if you enjoy tuning in that you take a moment to subscribe. This means that Each new episode will be delivered straight to your device and you won't miss any of them. And if you could also rate and review this podcast, it really helps others discover it too. Thank you so much. Now let's get into this week's episode and my chat with Henry. Hello Henry, welcome to Let's Talk Shop. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You might not remember this, but I remember the first time we met It was at the stationery show in 2013. I think you might have been presenting the awards and um, it might even have been the first year they were running it. I'm so excited to have you on the show and you have such a wealth of experience and I'm looking forward to hearing your story and sharing it. To start off, it would be lovely if you would tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Well, I'm really looking forward to doing this this afternoon. Um, I've never done anything quite like this before, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, see what develops in our conversation today. So to give you a bit of background as to how I got into retail, uh, the truthful answer is that I never thought I was going to work in retail. I actually studied law at university, and that was what I thought I would be doing sort of as my career. But way back when, in the days when things like student loans weren't normal, my local authority decided not to fund my time at university. So I had to think again, and I applied to Habitat as a graduate trainee. So that was how I started off in retail. But I am a firm believer that things happen for a reason even if it's not obvious at the time. Um, And I've been working in retail ever since, and I'm really lucky that I enjoy what I do so much. Sounds like you've had a long, well, I looked at it, and you have had a long career in retail now. What does it mean to be a retail consultant? Being a a retail consultant uh, these days is, is very different from when I started off. I've been doing this for 16 years now. And when I started off, 
I was working for a number of larger businesses. Um, I just finished being a buyer at WH Smiths and therefore I had a lot of contact uh, within the stationery industry. What I find now is that actually it's smaller businesses that want help. They don't want big pieces of work doing what they want is sort of ongoing mentoring, uh, a bit of a sounding board from time to time, uh, just to reassure them they're on the right track or to share some thoughts and ideas. But what I do find is no two days are the same. Every day I'm doing something slightly different. And that's the bit that I really find exciting about it all. It is exciting when not every day is the same, isn't it? Do you think there's a change in, you know, more smaller businesses starting business, coming on to the market and starting up? Is that what maybe why your clientele has changed? I think there are a lot more smaller businesses in most sectors these days. Some people, you know, who've had a job maybe with 10 or 15 years experience and want to set out on their own want to take a bit more control of their lives and have a bit more of a work-life balance. It's one of those things that actually it's much easier to do now, I think, with the internet um, and the way that businesses can trade online than it was maybe 15 or 20 years ago. It's much more normal as a thing to do. But what people do need is to be able to buy in expertise in certain areas that maybe they don't have those skills for. And working on your own can be quite lonely. Sometimes what you want is the reassurance that from somebody else that actually what you're doing is the right thing yeah I find that too with lots of my clients it's more sometimes it's just about having a brainstorm and someone to sort of chat to someone that is not your family or your friends Definitely. <laughs> um, so you are the deputy chairman of the giftware association yes that's right and you used to be the chairman. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Giftware Association does and what your role involves? Sure. So uh, the Giftware Association is the only trade association in the UK that actually supports the gift industry. And of course, the thing about the gift industry is that it's absolutely vast because the things that I might think of as being a gift might be completely different from those that you might think of. And so actually, it can be as broad category as you want it to be. The giftware associations are not a, a not-for-profit organization and in that way it's managed by a team of six people headed up by Sarah Ward who's the CEO. They are supported by a national committee of 12 people from businesses across the industry both retailers and suppliers and as the national committee or indeed in the chairman's role um, everything we do is voluntary so it's done in our own time. I was lucky enough to be asked to become chairman in 2013 and in taking on that role actually it's a six-year commitment because you do two years as vice chairman, two years as chairman and then two years as deputy chairman. The idea you have a bit of an apprenticeship but it also means there's three of you there to support Sarah and the team however they need it. That sounds really interesting and I bet you meet a lot of fun companies and a lot of business owners that way. Um, a huge number and in sectors within the industry that I'm not necessarily terribly familiar with. And that's the bit that I love is finding out about other areas um, of the of the gift industry and understanding their issues and problems and trying to help them wherever we can. Yeah, I think the gift industry is so exciting because, as you said, it could be anything. And 
I I know that when I started in the giftware uh, giftware industry back at the MPW days, we sold into fashion chains, and that was probably at the start when they first started ranging gifts. And and now that's sort of become the norm. Yes, I mean it is just extraordinary. It's a bit like greeting cards. You know, the number of retailers that now sell these types of products, not necessarily in huge displays, but you know, niche collections or seasonally. Yes, it's changed beyond all recognition, I think, probably in the last 20 years. Yeah, it's so exciting. How do you uh, become a member of the Giftware Association and what are the benefits to being a member? To become a member, it is just a question of applying, um, approaching the team, and they, they will process your application. Any size of business can join from the smallest to the largest. But what we find is these days, actually, again, it's the small and medium-sized businesses that benefit the most from membership, being able to access services and advice that they wouldn't normally be able to afford and that larger businesses will tend to have in-house anyway and therefore don't need from the GA. Yeah, I think it's that's something that has changed quite a lot too because I feel that the Giftware Association has become so much more approachable and more available on to the small businesses throughout like the time I've been in the sector, which is kind of 11 years or so. Well, certainly having Sarah as our CEO has made a massive difference. Uh, she joined us in 2015 and because she comes from a supplier background, she really understands what it is that suppliers need in terms of support and advice. And uh, she's worked very hard to put together all sorts of new packages. The new education program, for example, that we've launched this year has all sorts of seminars that members can attend at amazingly reasonable rates for a day's input from specific experts on certain subjects. And the take-up is phenomenal. It's really interesting to see how many people do want to buy into that expertise just for a day. Whereas before, things like trade fair discounts were the big driver for membership. As wholesalers do fewer and fewer shows, that doesn't have the same appeal. But the specialist input and advice really is beginning to become a major draw in terms of people wanting to become members, which is fantastic. Yeah, I've seen that advertised on LinkedIn and things, and it it looks great. I um only done one workshop so far, but it was so much fun. And I think that the changing climate has really kind of changed the way we work. And instead of hiring full-time people, we find ways of learning how to do things because we can't afford perhaps to take on staff in the same way as we used to. Well, and certainly you don't need that expertise all the time. You know, you need to be able to dip in and out. Um, and hopefully once you've learned those skills, it's something that you could go in and work on yourself anyway. Absolutely. So we read things about the struggling high street almost daily now, or at least monthly. How do you view the current retail climate in the UK? Um, well, I, th- I think it's very tough um, for those supplying into it and those running the shops. It has definitely become much harder in the last 10 years or so. And it's changing all the time. There is no doubt about that. I mean, Sir Philip Green alluded to that uh, when he got the CVAs passed for the Arcadia Group this week. But what he's experienced is, is exactly the same as everybody else. And it's all about a changing model in terms of the cost structure that retailers are having to work with, but also that consumer demand is changing beyond belief, both in terms of 
what people want to buy, when they want to buy it, and how much they're prepared to pay for it. And actually, as retailers, we have to get our heads around that and decide where we fit into that and what it is that we offer. And until we get that right, we'll continue to find it very hard. Yeah, the, maybe that's why some people buy more online from small independent businesses now as well. Because they can't find that on the high street all the time. Online certainly makes it much more convenient and, and easier to do bit, you know, on your way home, on your mobile phone and so on. What online doesn't give you is a more personal experience. And there is definitely a place for that as well. But it's only in certain types of shopping when you want something special. And I think that's one of the big changes that as retailers and local councils and so on, we have to get our heads around in terms of deciding what it is that we're going to offer customers. It's going to make them come and shop with us rather than just buying on their phones. Yeah, absolutely. I see a lot of shops doing workshops and events to kind of try to encourage footfall. And I think the experience of shopping is going to have to, you know, the reason for us to go to a shop it has to do with the experience more now than the actual products in the shop, I think, sometimes. It's certainly going to be a combination of the two. I don't think we can rely on what we've done for the last 10 years and expect people to keep coming in and spending the same amount of money. And that, coupled with the fact that we've got the massive hike in rents and rates, we're now having to contribute to all our staff's pensions and the increase in the living wage, which does impact on a lot of retail workers means that that increase in the cost base, then the increase in cost prices of the product we're trying to stop squeezing our margin and the decrease in footfall is causing this perfect storm. And it's affecting big and little retailers alike. It's not peculiar just to the, the big retailers. It's just that they're the ones that hit the news. So what do you think that retailers has to do to combat that or what can they do to combat it? I think they have to really think very hard about who the shoppers are that are coming into their stores and then make sure that what they're offering is relevant. And by relevant, I mean it's the right type of product, it's the right quality of product, it's at the right price, and that they're open to trade at the right times. If you're in a location that is on the way to the station and you close at five o'clock and yet you have a massive footfall at seven in the evening, you need to be asking yourself whether you should be trading later in the day. Um, those sorts of things um, are, are really important to think about. And it's not that we haven't thought about them before, but we need to revisit those questions and make sure that the answers are the same. And if we need to do things differently, then we should at least give it a go and see what impact it has. Yeah, I guess in today's climate, we have to test things more and react quicker, maybe, than we did 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and we have to be flexible. And, you know, that's difficult. Um, you know, you've got staff teams that, you know, maybe don't want to work those hours. But I just don't think you can afford to say, I'm not going to do it, unless you're absolutely certain that it's not going to improve your trading position. Absolutely. And I guess we can't talk about business in the UK without touching on Brexit and the impact it will have on small businesses. What can small businesses do to prepare? Is there anything they can do, do you think? Well, until we know what the actual scenario is going to be, there is nothing specific that we can do because we don't know if we're leaving with a deal or without a deal, and therefore we don't know the impact of that on trade. But I think what we can do is to review our business positions and make sure that actually we are as efficient as we possibly can be, that we're not spending money unnecessarily, and that if we can save money, we're reinvesting it back into our businesses 
so that we really are fit and ready to go and completely flexible once we understand what the scenario is going to be. Absolutely. And I personally love that there's so many new and creative businesses launching every week. And a lot of them put sustainability at the heart of their business. Have you noticed any trends in retail and buying that small suppliers can take advantage of? Uh, well, sustainability is, is certainly one, as you say. Um, yes, the, there are um, all sorts of trends that I think retailers and suppliers should be considering. But what they need to think about is which ones of those trends are relevant to the types of products they're either selling into retailers or retailers are selling to consumers because they won't all impact on every business. I think one of the ones that will is around single-use plastics and excess packaging. I think we all have to be very mindful around that. I've picked up on some conversations this week where uh, the team at John Lewis, for instance, are insisting that all cards that are supplied to them, I think by early 2020, will be unwrapped. Now, that's a huge ask. And, you know, given the type of, depending on the type of material that you might be printing on and so on, that's not necessarily easy to fulfill. But the moment some of the big players start to make those requests of their suppliers, then actually by default, everyone will have to follow because you can't afford to make exceptions. So things like excess packaging, single-use plastics. I was at the housewares show on Wednesday this week, and it was really interesting to see the increase in the amount of picnic wear and drinkware to stop us using things like um, plastic bottles, you know, that you're just buying off a counter for, you know, a pound and then throwing away again, all those types of things. If you're selling food, even if it's just confectionery at a till point, you know, should you be offering a vegan friendly version? You know, so if it's fruit sweets, are, are you now going to offer ones that don't have gelatin in, for example, just because that's something that's coming more and more into demand? So it works at all sorts of levels. And as retailers or wholesalers, you have to decide which ones are relevant the products that you're selling and the customers you're selling to. Absolutely. I feel that a lot of the small business owners I speak to that sell stationery, for example, they would love to supply their cars kind of naked, if you will. So I think that they would really like this new uh, initiative from Joe Lewis. But I, re I realized that if you have cards with sequins on and things, then they might not be that easy for you to do. Well, and that's going to be the challenge, really, is how you deal with cards, for example, that have got a lot of hand finish on them. But likewise, cards where a lot of the background colour may be just the white board that they're printed onto, you know, they're going to mark much more easily. Are customers going to accept that? Or are you going to have much higher write-offs? And who's going to fund that? Is that the retailer is going to lose out? You know, they're all things that have to be considered and thought through really in the next couple of months because um, the change seems to be happening very fast. Yeah, I read that um, Paper Chase is also trialing naked cards at the moment. Yes, and the supermarkets are having a go with it as well. I'll be interested to see what happens when somebody gets to one of these self-service tills and realizes they haven't got an envelope and how they're going to deal with that. I haven't been stuck behind anybody yet, but um, it won't be long before it happens, I'm sure. No, maybe not, but maybe people will get used to it. I think, I, I was trying to think back on when I was young, and I don't think that cards used to be sold in plastic wraps when I was a teenager. No, they didn't. They, they were sold loose, as you say. I mean, I, I can certainly remember that. Um, I, I couldn't put a date on it, but no, they were, they were always loose, just with an envelope tucked inside. 
but of course in those days you probably didn't have as many sort of self-service type retail outlets it was much more about being served with many more tills and things so i think the change in the retail environment and this sort of unpackaged card uh will be challenging in certain retail environments while we get our heads around it and get used to it absolutely maybe a little bit easier for the independent small boutiques and stuff but definitely a challenge for a supermarket i think yeah i suspect we're going to find lots of very boring white envelopes left on the shelf and all the colorful ones picked from other cards that's my hunch yeah if you do a nice quality envelope with a nice envelope liner or something you're probably going to have to send out a lot of extra envelopes yes i suspect there'll be a bit of that going on do you think well, we already touched a little bit about how buying has changed over the years. Do you think there's anything to add to that? Uh, from a consumer point of view or a retail buyer's point of view? A retail buyer's point of view. Uh, yes, I think that's huge, changed hugely. When I first started off in buying, it wasn't unusual for certainly independents to place all their orders as a show uh, before they left to go home again. Multiple retailers less so, because if you're working for a larger retailer, it's rarely just your decision as to what's stocked or indeed how many you buy. But certainly for smaller retailers, it was quite normal to go and, and you know, spend all of the budget you had available on your trip to the show. I see less and less of that happening now, and I think it's for several reasons. One is that retailers just need a bit more time to think about what they're going to spend before they hand or rather before they commit to an order. But also they may be wanting to phase the delivery of those orders and therefore they don't want to spend um, all their money up front. And in honesty, you just don't know what you're going to find around the corner in the next haul. So unless you can afford to go back for a second day and revisit your preferred stands, I've sort of never really understood why you would place orders as a show anyway, because you need that thinking time to make sure you've seen the best of the best before you commit. But certainly now, you talking to any exhibitors, they will say, you know, oh, we haven't taken many orders. And people are beginning to realise that actually they are less and less likely to do that. That in itself, I don't think is a problem, but it makes the follow-up after a show much more crucial from an exhibitor's point of view if the show is going to be useful. So I, I just think that whole dynamic has changed. And, you know, buyers themselves probably don't go to as many shows, but what they are doing is choosing the ones that are going to be the best for them so that they make the best use of their time when they're there. Absolutely. I, I've certainly noticed that when I've done shows, the footfall, not necessarily football, but the busyness of taking orders has definitely changed throughout the years. I remember when we used to not be, you know, we would hunch behind the counter to eat our sandwich because <laughs> we didn't have time to do anything but write orders. But now it's much more about the conversations and the connections you make at the show. And as you said, the follow up afterwards, which I think if you're not as, you know, a salesperson, it's it's quite a learning curve for a small business owner that is trying to do everything themselves to um, have the time after the show to put into the follow-up. Well, I think it also means that the conversation you have on the stand has to be much more detailed so you understand their timing in terms of the decisions they're going to take and when they want the stock delivered, um, the sorts of issues that they're looking to consider in making that final decision. So that in the follow-up, you get your pitch absolutely spot on um, and you're taking away any reason why they might not place an order. Absolutely. That's something I always say as well when I work with clients one-to-one -one, that make really detailed notes about the conversations you had at the show so that you can do your follow-up 
really carefully and very relevant to the person that you're actually following up with. Yes, they they need to know that you've really thought about the proposal that you're going back with, all the details, so that any decisions that are made can be done quickly and easily. And would you still recommend to exhibit at the show, and or is that still the best uh, one of the really good ways of kind of getting out there and getting new stockists i think you have to because if you don't how will a retailer even know that you exist or that the product that you have on offer but i think it's critical to make sure that you're going to the right shows where you know you're going to find the right type of buyer the right uh quality of outlet and so on so that you're not wasting your time and money exhibiting at the wrong shows and getting very frustrated that you're not having the quality of conversation that you need to have and do you have a favorite show for a home and gift company or do you think that you have to research it individually i think you have to research it individually i have shows that i enjoy going to but it depends which retailer i'm buying for at the time as to which one's going to be most useful absolutely and i think that also every year each show is slightly different because they obviously attract different people every year so you never know which one is going to win out with the most visitors each year. No, you probably don't in terms of the volume of visitors, but actually it, it's the right quality of visitor for your type of business that would be my measure. You know, so to have four good conversations in a day, I would suggest is better than having 40 quick and poor conversations that actually don't give you any real leads. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And what would you say is, apart from trade shows, is there any other way that you would recommend as small new suppliers to approach new stockists and potential stockists to introduce their business? I think they need to really think about the market sector that they're trading in and where the retailers that they're trying to get in contact with are likely to be going to find product. And it's not necessarily trade shows. You're absolutely right. You know, what type of uh, sites might they be looking at online? What type of magazines might they be reading? Are they looking at a local level rather than a national level for the types of products that they want? And then making sure that you're using those channels to get in front of them. Yeah, I actually, on my Instagram, it came up with one of those online trade shows websites or a wholesale kind of portal i guess i i haven't actually had much experience with them but they pop up on my instagram feed quite a lot do you have you heard anything about them i know people that have used them um i think you have to be quite careful in reading their terms and conditions and understanding exactly how it works and how you're going to be charged but if they can get you in front of the right audience in terms of retail buyer and and you're happy with the way it's going to trade, then I don't see why you wouldn't try it. Yeah, I guess this is the same with uh, being a supplier as a retailer. You just have to try everything that could work, I guess, to get yourself out there. Yeah, and I think if, if you've really thought about who your target retailers and consumers are, then that helps you identify the things that are going to be most useful to you. And it doesn't necessarily require you to spend a lot of money. It's about finding the most relevant. A couple of things that I see that, are a big challenge for someone that is just starting out with wholesale is obviously margin and then often their lead times. Do you have any advice on what retailers would expect as a base margin when from a smaller supplier? You often hear a, a 2.4 multiple being banded around in conversation. I think that's the absolute minimum that a retailer will expect these days. 
the reality is with all the increases in operational costs, as I mentioned earlier, they need more margin to stay profitable. So they're probably going to be looking for more margin than that. So in whatever costings that you're preparing, certainly absolutely fine to pitch in with an initial margin that will give a retailer 2.4 markup. But you need to know how much more you could offer them if they come back and ask you for a cheaper cost price making sure that you're making some profit too, of course. Yeah, it's a challenge sometimes when you are not buying in as big quantities. But I, I, I think that margin is really important now. If you're talking to some of the big schools, they'll be looking for a four times markup. I guess that's why building kind of slow and systematically sometimes for a smaller supplier is going to be the way to go because they can't afford to maybe trade with the bigger retailers right away. Um, I would agree. I mean, I, th- I think it's really interesting. So many people that I work with will say, to, when I say, you know, who is your target retailer, they'll turn around and say John Lewis. And you have to just manage that expectation and say, you know, that may be where you, what you're aspiring to long term, but that really is not the place to start because that's a hell of a learning curve. And so while it's getting you fantastic brand exposure, the costs of supplying a retailer in of that scale are unlikely to be achievable for somebody who's new in the market. And I often say, you know, that might be your ultimate goal, but you have to think about who can get you to that ultimate goal. You need to start local maybe or with smaller boutiques to sort of learn how to, the trade works too and the language of selling and buying and all the different terms and conditions and all the requirements everyone is asking for. Yes, and with a retailer like that, you only get one chance at it. And if, you know, through no fault of your own, you mess up, you're unlikely to get a chance to supply them again. So it's not worth the risk until you know that you've got it all sorted in terms of your processes. Yeah. How much impact do you think a supplier's lead time has have on a decision to range a product? Uh, Well, if it's a seasonal product, it will be the ultimate decision because if it can't arrive in time, they're not going to want to stock it. If it's a product that has a longer life, then it may be less crucial. But I would suggest that retailers are planning their space and their stock much more carefully. And therefore, actually, timing is quite critical. And what sort of lead time do you think is what 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 is the ideal lead time well if you were showing product at a show and it wasn't going to be available for the next 12 weeks i would suggest that's going to be a problem i think people are happy to wait three or four weeks most of the time i think that would be considered quite normal but if it's going to be significantly longer than that unless they're planning for an event a long way ahead in the calendar year then almost certainly they they will go somewhere else and what, what would make you say yes to a new supplier I would say yes to a new supplier if they had the product that I was looking for, uh, the price that I felt was right in terms of giving me enough margin to set the right retail price, and that based on the conversations that we were having, I felt that they understood what I was asking and they were going to be easy to deal with. And I I presume my next question was going to be what makes a good supplier, but I presume that is pretty much it, that they can answer and be easy to deal with and help you as a yes. buyer to deliver on time and have stock, plenty of stock and all that? Um, a good supplier, from my point of view, is somebody that doesn't cause me any problems. I, I don't want a call from QC telling me that a delivery has been rejected or that the quantity is short or that the invoice doesn't match. All of those things you know, become a problem. 
I always used to get suppliers who felt terribly offended that I never contacted them. And the reality was that was because they didn't cause me any problems. And therefore, actually, from my point of view, they were the perfect supplier. All I wanted to know was that the product was going to arrive on time as I had asked for it, that they were going to show me good new product when they had it available. And that if there was a problem, they were going to be honest about it and not try and hide it. Because the moment something gives you a problem, it wastes your time. And, uh, you know, you haven't got time for that as a buyer. No, you might be dealing with quite a big volume of suppliers that will all want to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is you end up planning forward and dealing with problems. And the fewer problems you've got, the better. So if a supplier doesn't give you any problems, that's the perfect world as far as I'm concerned. And uh, what, what what would be your top tip for building a long-lasting relationship with a stockist? Being proficient at what you do and being honest. That would that would be it. That's good advice. And what would uh, what advice would you give someone new to wholesale? Make sure you understand what a, a retailer is expecting from you. And don't be afraid to ask questions. And finally, can you tell us a brand that deserves a shout out, a retailer that you think is getting it right and your latest product find that you think will be big this autumn? Well, I am going to uh, think back to the last two trade shows I've been to. So uh, PG Live, which is all cards, and the stationery show, which not surprisingly is all stationery. And in terms of brands that I think deserve a shout out, I am going to pick two card brands one a card publisher called bexy boo who is just fantastically innovative and her cards always make me laugh and the art file whose printing techniques are just extraordinary and that extraordinary and their cards are always wonderful uh, in terms of a retailer i think i would pick papersmiths small chain of stationery specialists with five shops their ranging is just fantastic and I find stuff in there that I haven't seen before, which I love. And in terms of new products, there are some fantastic new pens coming out into the market at the moment. One, a product called Chameleon, which I had never come across before. And you can blend and mix the colors of this pen by putting different lids onto the top of the fiber tip. And if it absorbs ink from, from the lid and changes color, just as a chameleon does, oh, wow. which absolutely blew my mind. That sounds amazing. I love stationery. Yes, well, I've been working with it for 30 years, so I'm a bit of a geek these days. Oh, that sounds like a great product, and I have never seen that too. I will uh, make sure to link to all those companies in the show notes so you got, all can have a look if you want to. So that's all the question I have for today. Thank you so much, Henry, for chatting with me. Before I let you go, can you tell listeners where they can find you and connect with you? Probably the best way um, is to go to my website, which is www.henrydavis.co.uk. But I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I'd love to connect with anybody who is, is interested in finding more about stationery and what I do. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I will add all those links to the show notes including your website and twitter and instagram handle thank you so much henry for coming on the show and thank you for listening if you enjoyed the episode remember to subscribe rate and review as it really does mean the world to me in the next episode which is already available i will be chatting to kelly from bookish and bakewell as a book lover, I really loved speaking to Kelly about her journey to get started with wholesale 
and what the future holds and her dreams. Until then, keep on innovating and evolving to grow your business.